It was the business of slavery that allowed New England to become an economic powerhouse without ever producing a single staple or cash crop. The irony of American history is that we are one of the few countries in the world that begin with a stated purpose. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that we're all created equal. I begin my American history courses saying there were Africans in Virginia before there were pilgrims in Massachusetts. Understanding history and understanding why two black dudes can sit in Starbucks, but a white girl can carry an AR-15 on a college campus, why is that the way it is? You don't know who you are as an American unless you know the story of slavery. We aren't making students. We're making citizens, because at the end of the day, that's what our kids are going to be. To fully understand the historic times that we are living in, it is important to comprehend the central role of slavery in our nation's past. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, and this is Teaching Hard History, a podcast from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This episode is a special look back at important ideas from our first season and how they correspond to the 10 key concepts in Teaching Tolerance's framework for helping educators talk about and teach the history of American slavery. Chronologically, these concepts begin before there was a United States. The first is that Europeans practiced slavery long before they invaded the Americas and established the 13 colonies. The second, slavery and the slave trade were central to the growth of those colonial economies. Here are excerpts from our interviews with Christy Clark Pujara of the Afro-American Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin, Paul Finkelman, editor of the Encyclopedia of African-American History, and Bethany Jay, co-editor of the book Understanding and Teaching American Slavery. It was the business of slavery that allowed New England to become an economic powerhouse without ever producing a single staple our cash crop. At the founding of the American nation in 1775-76, slavery is legal everywhere in what becomes the United States. In fact, slavery is legal everywhere in the New World, from the Arctic Circle to the Straits of Magellan. Every colony all across both South America and North America has slaves and slavery is legal. Farmers in southern Rhode Island put thousands of enslaved men, women, and children to work producing foodstuffs and raising livestock for the West Indian trade. So you have enslaved people in southern Rhode Island growing foodstuffs for enslaved people in the West Indies. I begin my American history courses saying there were Africans in Virginia before there were pilgrims in Massachusetts. Manufacturing plants throughout the North and in New England in particular that produced farming implements. Who were they selling those farming implements to? Southern plantation owners to be used by enslaved people. During the revolution, this begins to change. Americans who are fighting for their liberty are faced with the dilemma of how can we fight for our liberty when we deny liberty to other people. And so starting in 1780, some Americans will begin to dismantle slavery. Such racial disparities and divides, these are not a function of the last 50 years or 100 years. They're a function of hundreds of years of what's been happening since 1607. The irony of American history 
is that we are one of the few countries in the world that begin with a stated purpose. We hold these truths to be self-evident that we're all created equal. England doesn't have a statement that all Englishmen have the rights of Englishmen. France doesn't say this is what it means to be French. The French Declaration of Rights says that, but that's well after France became a country. But we state it. The third key concept in the framework for teaching hard history is that the founding documents of our nation protected slavery. Enslavers dominated the new federal government, controlling the Supreme Court and the Senate. Here again are Paul Finkelman and Bethany Jay, along with John Bickford of Eastern Illinois University and Christian Coates, formerly of the Montpelier Foundation. And so there is this inherent tension from day one between the rights of slave owners to be free and to have liberty, including the liberty to own other people, to buy and sell other people, to whip other people, to treat other people like property. And other Americans who find this to be immoral and appalling and horrible. Take a look at Thomas Jefferson. Nearly all of his trade books focus on this idea that he was a good master who loved liberty and wanted to give it to everyone, but he just couldn't free his slaves because of the debt that he had or how the American high society was a difficult social structure for him to negotiate. Get serious. He was a slave master. He spoke of liberty, but he only freed the slaves he most likely fathered. Madison will abhor slavery his entire life. He writes about it all the time, from the time he's a young man in college until the time he dies. And yet he'll be a slave owner his entire life and will never free a single individual. And he'll own well over 100. So how do we balance slavery and freedom in a nation that on one hand begins with assertions of freedom and rights of liberty. And on the other hand, these assertions are actually being written by slave owners. From the ratification of the Constitution onwards, one of the biggest issues that separated northern and southern states was the enforcement of federal laws relating to slavery. Particularly, whether federal laws could compel people in the north to return escaped slaves to slave owners in the South. At least 60,000 slaves are brought into the United States between 1803 and 1808. This is the largest importation of slaves into what became the United States in the entire history of the country. The Fugitive Slave Clause was written into the Constitution. It's in Article 4, Section 2, and it guaranteed that slaves who fled to free states would still have to be returned to slavery if Southern slave owners claimed them. If a slave runs away from Virginia to Pennsylvania, he cannot become free under Pennsylvania law. If a slave runs from Kentucky into Ohio, she does not become free under Ohio law. Anthony Burns had been a slave in Virginia, and he escaped to Boston. When the former slaveholder learned where Burns was, he traveled to Boston to reclaim what he saw as his property, namely Anthony Burns. In May of 1854, Burns was eventually arrested. Boston abolitionists mobilized in response to Burns's arrest. Federal authorities declared him to be a fugitive slave, and they sent soldiers to come and collect Burns from Boston and bring him back to slavery in Virginia. 50,000 Bostonians lined the streets to watch as he was marched in shackles right to a waiting vessel. One Massachusetts native wrote, 
We went to bed one night, old-fashioned, conservative, compromised union Whigs, and waked up stark mad abolitionists. The Supreme Court holds that no state can interfere in the return of a fugitive slave, that a master had a right to seize a slave anywhere the slave was found without any judicial process. A slave catcher could simply grab someone, say, this is my slave, I'm taking him or her back to my state. And the free state had no right to interfere. Northern states immediately passed laws prohibiting their state officials from helping in the return of fugitive slaves. Slavery was an economic institution designed to generate profits for enslavers. Its methods were promoting racism and trying to break the will of the enslaved. That's the fourth key concept in our Teaching Hard History educational framework. The fifth emphasizes how enslaved people resisted those injustices in both ordinary and extraordinary ways. Enslaved African Americans in the southern United States produced the bulk of the world's cotton and almost all of the cotton consumed by the U.S. textile industry during the antebellum era. Northerners, especially New Yorkers, were buying, selling, and shipping it. By 1860, cotton represented more than half of all of U.S. exports, and Lower Manhattan was populated with cotton brokers, bankers, merchants, shippers, auctioneers, and insurers who profited from that export. Only New York banks were big enough to extend massive lines of credit to plantation owners so they could buy seed, farming equipment, and people. It's wrong to think of slavery as geographically bound to warm climates. Slavery is profitable wherever free labor can turn a profit. The now infamous Lehman Brothers began as cotton brokers. The first Morgan fortune was made by Charles Morgan, whose shipping line dominated the Gulf Coast line, transporting enslaved captives from the Upper South to the Deep South. Historically, slaves had always been used for mining. They'd been used for raising cattle. They'd been used for growing wheat. The Roman Empire grew wheat with slaves. The Roman Empire mined with slaves. Well, Brazil is full of these gigantic rebellions of hundreds of thousands of people, or Caribbean rebellions and so forth. Haiti... Uh, which is inspired by the French Revolution, where the entire country undergoes a revolution. Uh, Thousands and thousands of whites are slaughtered in this revolution, and Haiti becomes the first country ruled by Africans in the New World. In the United States, the United States had a much larger white population than many of these other areas, and it was hard to have a rebellion in an area where there were so many whites who could organize and repress the rebellion right away. So uh, to take one example, one of the most famous slave rebellions is the Nat Turner Rebellion uh, in Virginia in 1831, and that involves maybe 60 rebels who kill 55 white people. And when is the militia called out? When is the army called out? After Nat Turner's rebellion, the U.S. Navy hunts for slaves who had been part of Nat Turner's rebellion. So Thomas Gray met Nat Turner in his jail cell and basically interviewed him. This is called the Confessions of Nat Turner. Listen to what he says here. As I was praying one day at my plow, as I was praying one day at my plow, the spirit spoke to me. The spirit spoke to me saying, "Seek ye the kingdom of heaven and all things shall be added unto you." 
What do you mean by the spirit? The spirit that spoke to the prophets in former days. And I was greatly astonished, and for two years prayed continually whenever my duty would permit. And then, again, I had the same revelation, which fully confirmed me in the impression that I was ordained for some great purpose in the hands of the Almighty. There's another moment, too, in the Confessions, and Gray says, Do you not find yourself mistaken now? Was not Christ crucified? Was not Christ crucified? Was not Christ crucified? It just sends chills up and down your spine. Here's a guy who knows he's going to be killed, who's surrounded by his enemies, who has no chance of survival, and he has the tremendous confidence to speak back to Gray in that jail cell. And by signs in the heavens that it would make known to me when I should commence the great work, and until the first sign appeared, I should conceal it from the knowledge of men. And on the appearance of the sign, the eclipse of sun last February, I should arise and prepare myself and slay my enemies with their own weapons. When John Brown organizes a raid into Virginia, now West Virginia, to help free slaves, the local Virginia authorities don't have the power to suppress John Brown. They have to wait for the U.S. Marines to arrive, led by an army colonel named Robert E. Lee. And so John Brown is suppressed by the U.S. Army. So again, while Southerners talk about states' rights, they are in fact delighted to have the federal government send troops to Virginia, send troops to what is now West Virginia, send troops to Louisiana, send troops anywhere where there might be a slave rebellion. That was Paul Finkelman, author of Congress and the Crisis of the 1850s. Before him, we heard Brock Peters reading from the confessions of Nat Turner, along with Kenneth Greenberg, author of Nat Turner, A Slave Rebellion in History and Memory, and Christy Clark Pujara, who wrote Dark Work, The Business of Slavery in Rhode Island. This is Teaching Hard History, a podcast from Teaching Tolerance. We're on the web at tolerance.org. Our sixth key concept is conveying the wide variety of slavery experiences. Life for an enslaved person depended on when and where they lived, as well as the kind of work they were forced to do. John Bickford of Eastern Illinois University, Stephen Oliver of Salem State, and middle school teacher Tamara Spears let us know that the best way to discover the experiences of the enslaved is to use primary sources so we can hear from the enslaved themselves. I'd love to use the actual audio recordings. And now there's such a rich body of interviews that were done in the 30s and 40s with individuals who were still living at that time who had actually been slaves. Can you remember slavery days very well? Of course, I remember all our white folks. I'm always the cook. I remember when she used to buy oxen. I fried oxen myself. Is that right? I can probably lay off a cornrow as good as any man. Is that right? Of course I can. Well, good to Pick cotton. I used to pick my 500 pounds of cotton. Knock out 500 pounds? Knock out 500 pounds of cotton, then walk across the field and, and hunt watermelon, plum grainers, and stuff like that. Yeah. That's a lot of Yeah. But now teachers can locate the original 
Library of Congress document or in the National Archives, and they can explore in more depth, say, a runaway advertisement. If it says, and I'm quoting here, ran away, a Negro girl called Mary has a small scar over her eye, a good many teeth missing, the letter A is branded on her cheek. But it came that old woman, poor old woman, cat in the peach orchard, and whipped her. And, you know, just tied her hand this way, you know, around the peach orchard tree, and whipped her. And, well, she couldn't do nothing but just kick her feet, you know, just kick her feet. But it, it just had her clothes all down to her waist, you know. And every now and then they'd whip her, you know, and then snuff the pipe out on her, you know. she snuff pipe out on her. Blow them out on Here's a direct quote from one book. One day you'll be free. Perhaps in the master's will, I believe my husband will set you free. This is a slave mistress (laughs) talking to a slave about how, yeah, you can hope for freedom. That's ridiculous. I was born in Africa, Liberia, Africa, and come from the United States. That is in slavery time, they sold the colored people. Yes. Solely colored people. And it brought me from Africa. I was a child, a boy. Primary sources are what the kids can really build their facts on. What were they doing back in West Africa or Central Africa or wherever they came from? Then they tricked you to get you on the boat. They fooled you on the boat. They fooled the colored people. And the way they got us on the boat, he said, over in that country, you don't have to wait. If you get hungry, all you got to do is go to the flitter tree. Same thing now, we could, people call them pancakes, they call them flitters. Come on down here in the hatch hole. Got on the hatch hole, we should have the boat moving, and it's leaving. And when it landed, it landed, and you all leave. And the man, they put you up on a block to sell you, to bid you all. The highest bid will get you. He will tend to his plantation, put another one up there. And they went to mistreating the colored, getting children by the colored women. And they come down the north and the south, fought water to free the colored. The north and south, fought water to free the colored people from slavery time. A slave named Jordan Anderson. He escaped from his master, I think in one of the Carolinas, and he made it to Canada. And sometime after the Civil War, his master wrote a letter asking, would you come back and work for me on my plantation? You can be free. And what you have is Jordan's response to his former master and statements like, even though you shot at me twice when I was running, I'm glad to hear the Union soldiers didn't get you. You know, he's wonderfully audacious. My name is Fountain Hughes. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. My grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. And now I am 101 years old. That's no. A gentleman by the name of Fountain Hughes very matter-of-factly is telling his story of having been a slave and says we were sold bought and sold the way you might sell cows or horses? Well, I don't know how. I don't know to tell you the truth. When I think of it today, I don't know how I'm living. You wasn't treated as good as you treat dogs now. But still, I don't like to talk about it because it makes, makes people feel bad. You know? He also talks about what happened when slavery ended 
and the ways in which people really had nowhere to go were just sort of put out like wild cattle. Do you remember much about the Civil War? I remember when the Yankees came along and took all the good horses and sold all the meat and flour and sugar and stuff out in the river and let it go down the river. And they know the people wouldn't have nothing to live on, but they done that. And that's the reason why I don't like to talk about it. Colored people are free, they ought to be awful thankful. And some of them are sorry they are free now. Some of them now would rather be slaves. Hmm. Which would you rather be, Uncle Fan? Me? You know what I'd rather do? If I thought that I'd ever be a slave again, I'd take a gun and just end it all right away. Because you're nothing but a dog. You're not a thing but a dog. Because you're nothing but a dog. In his narration, he says, you know, we, we didn't know anything because we were never allowed to look at a book. The impact of withholding an education from individuals. Throughout much of slavery, it's a crime to teach someone how to read who is an enslaved person because reading is seen as the way in which people can learn about the rest of the world and get ideas which might undermine slavery. Well, well, while you all were slaves, did they teach you to read and write? Did you all go to uh-uh. school? Nuh-uh. Uh, they didn't know nothing about reading and writing. All that I know, they teach you to mind your master and your missus. <laughs> they sure didn't teach you to read and write. No, they didn't. I picked up and I remember them. Yeah, I remember all about them slavery time. Here's the lily of the valley. Here's the blazing morning song. When they put on Daniel in the lion den, Jesus loves the lion jaw. You're listening to Wallace Quarterman, a formerly enslaved person, recorded in 1935 by noted cultural anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston for the Library of Congress. Did you know you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode of Teaching Hard History? It's a special opportunity for educators from Learning for Justice. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You'll also find a link in the show notes. Once you're there, enter the unique code word for this episode, FOUNDATION, all lowercase. Now back to the episode. Ever since the Civil War, people have invented all manner of reasons for why the South seceded. But if you examine what the proponents of secession said and wrote at the time, the primary reason is abundantly clear. That's our seventh key concept. Slavery was the central cause of the Civil War. Here again are Bethany J. of Salem State University and Paul Finkelman, president of Gratz College. This was a slaveholding republic from the start. There's all sorts of protections for slavery and slaveholders in the Constitution. Our constitutional law is heavily tied to the needs of protecting and preserving slavery and many of our important constitutional doctrines that we still live with today came out of slavery. So what changed? 
What changed from the Constitutional Convention in 1787 to 1860? Well, what changes is Lincoln's election. And Southerners feeling that the power of the slaveholders in the federal government is no longer going to be a sort of bulwark to protect slavery no matter what. And the final thing to understand about the Constitution is that secession in 1860-61 is about slavery. It is not about states' rights, because as we've seen, the Southerners hate states' rights, because states' rights are what Northerners are using to fight slavery. In fact, in their secession documents, the Texas Secession Convention says that slavery will exist forever in the state of Texas. Mississippi says slavery is the most important institution in the world, and they're seceding to preserve slavery. First and foremost, students should recognize that Southern politicians were not always in favor of states' rights. In fact, for the majority of the 19th century, prior to the Civil War, they supported the use of federal authority over states' rights to protect slavery. The vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, gives a speech on the eve of the Civil War. And he says that in the North, people believe in racial equality. And then he says, our government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. And so the South becomes the first country in the history of the world to be created on the basis of racial inequality and racial subordination. From the onset of the war, free blacks in the North clamored for a chance to serve as soldiers in the Union Army. Frederick Douglass said, once let the black man get upon his person the brass letter U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, and there is no power on earth which can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship in the United States. At the battles of Lexington and Concord, there were black soldiers fighting along white soldiers in the Massachusetts militias. And at the Battle of Bunker Hill, one of the heroes was a black soldier. Even Confederate politicians recognized the implications of black military service. Joseph E. Brown, who was the governor of Georgia, famously stated, whenever we establish that they are a military race, we destroy our whole theory that they are unfit to be free. By the end of the war, nearly 180,000 black soldiers had fought in the Union Army. Of those, 98,500 had been slaves who fled the Confederacy. We really want to correct the notion that slaves were given their freedom. Free and enslaved African Americans worked tirelessly to make emancipation the outcome of war. When Lee's army marched into Pennsylvania, it captured free black people and dragged them to the South and enslaved them. This was a violation of every known rule of war in the Western world. It violated the Confederate military codes. When free black soldiers surrendered at Fort Pillow, they were massacred, they were shot, some of them were buried alive. and. General Lee and President Jefferson Davis did nothing to reprimand the Southern commanders who did this. So when Southerners insist on flying the Confederate flag over their state capital, or insist on having monuments to the leaders of the Confederacy, they are in fact supporting a regime. They are in fact remembering a regime that was created to support and preserve white supremacy, and slavery. 
Slavery shaped the fundamental beliefs of Americans about race and whiteness. That's our eighth key concept, that white supremacy was both a product and legacy of slavery. In this next segment, you'll hear Professors Deidre Cooper Owens of the University of Nebraska, Kenneth Greenberg of Suffolk University, Brooklyn Social Studies teacher Tamara Spears, and Price Thomas, formerly of the Montpelier Foundation. All were our guests in season one, and all talked about deeply held beliefs about race that intentionally dehumanized enslaved people, particularly enslaved women. Harriet Jacobs, who was a former slave, wrote a memoir, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, that spoke about her experiences and escape from slavery in North Carolina. Northerners know nothing at all about slavery. They think it is perpetual bondage only. They have no conception of the depth of degradation involved in that word, slavery. If they had, they would never cease their efforts until so horrible a system was overthrown. The excerpts from Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, read by Audio Elan, come to us courtesy of Cherry Hill Publishing. This Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is one of the few books written by a woman He tried his utmost to corrupt the pure principles my grandmother had instilled. He peopled my young mind with unclean images, such as only a vile monster could think of. She's describing being vulnerable, sexually vulnerable to her master. I turned from him with disgust and hatred. But he was my master. I was compelled to live under the same roof with him, where I saw a man forty years my senior daily violating the most sacred commandments of nature. He told me I was his property, that I must be subject to his will in all things. My soul revolted against the mean tyranny. But where could I turn for protection? No matter whether the slave girl be as black as ebony or as fair as her mistress, in either case there is no shadow of law to protect her from insult, from violence, or even death. All these are inflicted by fiends who bear the shape of men. There's no crime of rape in slavery. If you're a woman and you're enslaved and a white man sexually assaults you, you can't go to the police, you can't go to courts of any sort. That's not a crime. The only legal recourse would be if your master thought there was a violation and your master could bring the person who raped you to court on a charge of trespass. It's his property and someone else has trespassed on his property. But if a master rapes you, and this happens all the time, it's built into the institution, that's not a crime. It's not a crime if blacks rape you as well. So women are extremely vulnerable in slavery. There's another article about Suki who resists her master's advances. She's making soap, and, you know, he tries to come in, and he pulls down her dress and gets her to the floor. It doesn't get much more graphic than that. But she punches him, throws him into the soap. And the kids are cheering while they're reading. How do we use history to have modern conversations? You know, do we understand how slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow influences, uh, you know, a lot of the issues we see today when we talk about the achievement gap or wage discrimination or mass incarceration? You know, all these things matter and all these things are are connected. Uh, Then in 1954, in the famous Brown versus Board of Education case, the decision was made by the Supreme Court that If you separate the races, you can never give them an equal education, and therefore 
segregation was unconstitutional. That was just one of many, many decisions, but the great movement which extended into the 1960s and beyond, which attacked segregation, that changed the world. And I think that understanding history and understanding why two black dudes can't sit in Starbucks, but a white girl can carry an AR-15 on a college campus, why is that the way it is, right? Why do those things matter? What's the historical context for a lot of the modern issues that we're dealing with today that are popping up in the news? There's a saying, if only America loved black people as much as it loves black culture. Our ninth key concept explores how African-American culture, going back to the days of slavery, has impacted the cultural traditions of America and the world. But it's also popular culture that often promoted the destructive myths and racial stereotypes that continue to plague our nation. Here's film historian Ron Briley. Popular culture has often presented Reconstruction as the tragic era in which the South was taken advantage of after the war by freed blacks, northern carpetbaggers, the freedmen, former slaves, and poor Southern whites as a travesty in which white Southerners were treated terribly uh, until they rose up and redeemed the South and retook control. That is sort of the myth of Reconstruction, and it has certainly been perpetuated by Hollywood in films such as Birth of a Nation, made in 1915. Out in the countryside, freed blacks are taking over and attacking a cabin, and things look bad. Again, the the emphasis here is that, that what the blacks want to do is break in, attack, and rape the white women. So who's going to ride to the rescue? In this film version, the Ku Klux Klan rides to the rescue and saves the day. The South and Southern virtue is symbolized by the women who are rescued from the clutches of the blacks and the Klan is viewed as the hero. Incredibly racist material because what actually happened in America in 1915 is Americans went to the theater. Many whites saw this. Racial violence in the country increased. Lynchings increased. And it's interesting that uh, director D.W. Griffith uh, didn't think the film was racist, even though he said that he did not want black men touching white women in the filming of Birth of a Nation. So therefore, as ludicrous as it might seem, actually almost all the blacks in the film are played by whites using shoe polish and blackface. Birth of a Nation from 1915, and it continued with the very famous Gone with the Wind in 1939. Take a good look, my dear. It's a historic moment. You can tell your grandchildren how you watched the Old South disappear one night. Scarlett O'Hara takes a shortcut through a shanty town. Living in the shanty town are a lot of poor whites and free blacks. What happens is they attack Scarlett O'Hara. Okay, and it looks as if she is about to be raped. She passes out. She is rescued, however, by Big Sam, a loyal former slave from her plantation terror. Go! 
Then her husband says, I'll take care of this. He says he's going to a political meeting. You get to Tara just as quick as you can and stay there. I sure will. I've had enough of them carpetbaggers. Thank you, Mr. Frank. Goodbye, Miss Scarlett. Goodbye, Sam, and thank you. Scarlett, change your dress and go over to Miss Melly's for the evening. I've got to go to a political meeting. The film emphasizes that he takes out his pistol, puts it in his holster. Clearly, uh, he and his friends are going to go take revenge against the shantytown. And the political meeting he's referring to really is the Klan, although the word Klan is not used in the film. What's all this about? If you don't tell me, I'll go crazy. We thought it best not to tell you, Scarlett, but Ashley and Frank and the others have gone to clean out those woods where you were attacked. But a great many of our southern gentlemen have had to do lately for our protection. And if they're captured, they'll be hanged, Scarlet. And it will be your fault. Another word and you go out of this house, India. Scarlet did what she thought she had to do. Now men are doing what they think they have to do. Our understanding of the Civil War has been one that was built to reinforce white supremacy as well. Right? The Gone with the Wind narrative of the Old South, the Littlest Rebel in Shirley Temple, those are all white supremacist narratives of the Civil War as well. When I ground it in literature is I always start with like To Kill a Mockingbird because that leads me to Jim Crow laws, which leads me to lynching, which leads me to talking about Emmett Till, which leads me to talking about Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday, which opens up all these doors. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging. You know, when you look around you and you see the wonderful thing that African-Americans do in our society today, where does that all come from exactly? The culture that forges those wonderful institutions, the music, the religion, for example, all those things happen in the institution of slavery. So somehow, in the midst of this exploitation, there is tremendous achievement that goes on. I play the first five or six minutes of the Blackish episode based around Columbus Day because they have a skit about what Columbus did on the island of Hispaniola, which was begin genocide. Everything you know about Columbus is a joke. You didn't discover America? Prepare to get woke. I'm Christopher Columbus and I'm pretty much evil. On Hispaniola, my men killed the indigenous people. Die, Indians! But this isn't India. Speak English! You were so brave, Columbus, more than words can convey. And it's cool how your men killed 3,000 people in one day. So let's make one thing perfectly clear. Celebrating Columbus is celebrating a slavery pioneer. But at least you can get a great deal on a mattress. It's a pretty funny moment where Dre and his father confront one of the teachers about like, well, why don't we celebrate these other holidays? You know, like Magic Johnson is still alive day, Tupac's birthday, and then Juneteenth. Mm, everybody's represented here, St. Patrick's Day. Columbus Day, mm-hmm. Cinco de Mayo. What about Tupac's birthday? Oh, well. What about Magic Johnson still alive day? Really? Oh. What about Juneteenth? Maybe you should have led with that last one. Maybe. Okay. 
Everybody knows Christopher Columbus was honored for his bravery, but he never sailed to North America. He sold children into slavery. Because as we talk about removing Confederate monuments or the appropriateness of displaying the Confederate battle flag on public buildings, at the heart of that question is what the Confederacy was about. Was the Confederacy about a sort of abstract Southern way of life that is removed from the question of slavery and the rights of African-American people? Or was the Confederacy intrinsically tied to the issue of slavery? Was it, in fact, a movement whose main focus was to perpetuate the enslavement of three and a half million people? Well, can you remember how the, what, what happened when they set you free? Do you remember how the old master acted when they... No, so I can't remember that, you know. But I, I remember, you know, the time they give them a big dinner, you know, on the 19th. Is that right? On, on the 19th, you know, they give them a big dinner. Well, you see, I didn't know what that was for. Now a child six, seven years old can tell you. That's right. Yes, sir. You know, and old Marshall didn't tell you, you know, it was free. He didn't tell you that? No, he didn't tell. They wait till, I think now they said they wait them six months out of that, six months, and turn them loose on the 19th of June. That's why, you know, you celebrate that day, colors folks, celebrate that day. Knowing how to read and interpret historical sources gives us insight into the lives of African Americans during slavery, their aspirations, creations, thoughts, and desires. This is our 10th and final concept in teaching the hard history of American slavery. We've inherited this mess that we find ourselves in, right? Racism, sexism, homophobia, right? We've all been born into this sort of catastrophe. But what follows that very quickly is this notion that all of us, although we didn't create these dynamics, we now have a responsibility and an opportunity to consider the ways in which we might be upholding some of these systems of oppression, how we might be benefiting from some of these dynamics, and most importantly, how we can be part of undoing these systems of oppression. And that just hit home with me and sort of tying a lot of this together. Our responsibility as teachers to reflect the world that our students are living in, to make sure that our students are reflected in the history that we're talking about. Our students deserve more than a textbook to be memorized. And the way to do that is to position students to evaluate like historians, to position them to analyze and then creatively show what they know in new and novel ways. Overwhelmingly, the only emotion I get from my students about this is anger that they haven't heard it before. For so many generations, Americans viewed Black people as inherently dangerous, as an inherent threat to the legal and political and social order, and at least where slavery was preserved as fundamentally inferior. We have written into our constitutional law. Chief Justice Taney's decision that Blacks have no rights that whites need to respect. So history at its best is not about the past. It's about the present and how we function in the present. We can't obliterate the past. I wouldn't ban the teaching of the Civil War, but I wouldn't memorialize traitors either. And I wouldn't memorialize people who fought against their nation to preserve slavery. You don't know who you are as an American unless you know the story of slavery. We aren't making students. We're making citizens because at the end of the day, that's what our kids are going to be. 
And so you have to go into these lessons. You have to go into this preparation, this, this learning that you're talking about, this, this capacity building, understanding that your curriculum better make better citizens and better people through having them check their privilege, through having them look at their history, through having them engage with primary and secondary sources. Because if our only goal is to have some great activities, we're not doing our ancestors any bit of good. We're not doing our country any bit of good. Sorry, that was my soapbox. I sit down on it now, but like that's kind of why we need to do what we do. Jordan Lanfear teaches 7th and 8th grade in Chicago, Illinois. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the civil rights movement and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. We began by talking about slavery for two seasons. And now we're tracing that legacy of oppression and resistance into the present day. Thanks to all of the educators and experts we heard from in this episode. Our theme song for season one is Kerr's Negro Jig by the Carolina Chocolate Drops, who graciously let us use it in this series. Additional music is from Wendell Patrick's album, JDWP Tribute. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Teaching Tolerance provides free teaching materials about slavery and the civil rights movement that include award-winning films and classroom-ready texts on our website. You can find these, along with the Framework for Teaching American Slavery, at tolerance.org slash hardhistory, all one word. And we hope you will go back and listen to even more amazing content from season one. This podcast was produced by Barrett Golding. Kate Schuster is our executive producer. Our senior producer is Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer and our technical producer is Mary Quintus. Gabriel Smith provides content guidance. And our interns are Miranda LaFond and Amelia Gregg. I'm Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, and your host for Teaching Hard History. Thank you.